Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done nearly 600 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. And there's also a, a page that explains other ways to do it if you don't want to use PayPal or have any problem with it. My guest today is Richard Tarnas. Richard is a professor of psychology and cultural history at the California Institute of Integral Studies my alma mater in my next lifetime, in San Francisco, where he founded the graduate program in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness. He teaches courses in the history of ideas, archetypal studies, depth psychology, and religious evolution. He frequently lectures on those topics at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara and was formerly the director of programs in education at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, where he studied with Stanislav Groff, Joseph Campbell, Gregory Bateson, Houston Smith, and James Hillman. He received his Ph.D. from Saybrook Institute in 1976 with a dissertation on LSD psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and spiritual transformation. He is the author of Passion of the Western Mind, the History of the Western Worldview from the Ancient Greek to the Postmodern, widely used in universities, and his second book, Cosmos and Psyche, Intimations of a New World Order, received the Book of the Year Prize from the Scientific and Medical Network and is the basis for the upcoming documentary series, The Changing of the Gods. He is the past president of the International Transpersonal Association and served on the Board of Governors for the C.G. Young Institute of San Francisco. So, welcome, Richard. Thank you, Rick, for having yeah, me. Great to have you. What's happening with that documentary series? Oh, the doc- yeah, the documentary series, uh, Changing of the Gods. They're in their final stages of editing. It's a 10-episode series, and I know they're going through the final polishing of and editing, integrating the the music and soundtrack to the kind of level that is appropriate for the public. So anyway, they're in their last stages. I think it's going to be later this year, 2021, that it will be coming out. Good. And it'll be on YouTube or on some pay-per-view you, you thing know, or what? Uh, they've got a distribution. Honestly, because I'm not making the film myself, uh, I'm not but I believe they've got a special way of making it available rather than going through Netflix. They have another uh, independent way of doing it that they're very pleased about. Okay. So if I could just mention one slight correction in the uh, title for Cosmos and mm-hmm. Psyche, the subtitle is Intimations of a New World View rather than Intimations of a New World oh, Order. Oh, brother. It says uh, New World View right here. That's a Freudian slip if ever there was one. <laughs> it, I, I only bring that up because a New World Order, World Order very much brings back memories of certain American foreign policy imperatives that I didn't necessarily subscribe no, to. No, I agree. And so I'm working much more at the level of philosophical, religious, and cosmological worldview. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it says or it says view in my notes here. I, I just, I mean, that's such a sure. conspiratorial phrase these days. It's kind of in, in yes. the zeitgeist, so it kind of, I just slipped up. 
as I was telling you earlier, I've listened to 10 or 12 hours of your other talks and interviews and read quite a lot of things. And um, I've tried to sort of distill it down to what to me would be the most interesting things to talk about. And I want to make sure that you get to do the same and that between us, we cover those aspects of your work that most um, inspire us both. One for me, which is a sort of a distillation, I think, of what you're trying to say in Cosmos and Psyche, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that consciousness or intelligence is fundamental to the universe, pervades it, and, and can even be seen to comprise it, such that nothing is random, accidental, or arbitrary, and everything is infinitely correlated. So that's, that's one key point. Well, I would put it slightly differently. Mm -hmm. It's definitely in that direction in the sense that we live in a panpsychic ensouled universe, that it's intelligent and spiritually informed and at some deep level conscious, of, though not every expression of the cosmos is equally conscious, as we all know. But I don't think I would say that there's nothing, what's the, the words like random, accidental, I don't think that we're living out a blueprint that has every single detail uh, predetermined. I think we live in an open universe. The cosmos is itself, as I understand it, a continuing, evolving, creative act. And that creativity brings in a certain amount of unpredictability. It's bringing together multiple movements and infusions and and uh, impulses in each moment of our consciousness as well as in every other part of the cosmic uh, panoply of other consciousnesses there's a play in the system there's there's a, a kind of creative unpredictability that is crucial in my understanding to the human adventure if we were just living out a kind of predetermined structure of fate, that would be a less interesting adventure for sure, even though I think there is a constant interplay between underlying karmic factors, underlying archetypal and cosmological structures and evolutionary stages and so forth that take place collectively as well as individually. There's all sorts of structures that we're working within, but it's more like jazz music or rock and roll or blues, where you have certain formal structures chordal structures, harmonic architecture, as it were. And then within that larger architectural structure, it's up to us what melodies we sing, what dances we dance. Perhaps the genres are, to some extent, shaped by our culture and our the epoch we're living in. But I deeply believe that there's a certain element of human agency, of autonomy, of creative freedom and that's where our, our moral responsibility comes in, as well as the playful dimension artistically and so forth. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And when I say random or nothing is random or accidental or arbitrary, I concur with everything you just said. But it's sort of like if man is made in the image of God, then I think both we and God are doing improv. When Robin Williams did improv, he obviously had certain learning and experience and he spoke the English language. And so there was, you know, certain skills and traits that enabled him to do that. And yet it was a fluid, spontaneous thing and, and adaptable to how the audience responded and so on. But even a random number generator, I would say, which by its very name is random, it functions on the basis of certain laws of nature and, you know, the way computer chips are made. And if you get down deep enough in anything, 
you find pure intelligence permeating everything and orchestrating everything. But I don't for a minute think that everything is predetermined or set in some rigid way. Right, right. I only was trying to clarify those uh, terms, yeah. Clarify, because it's easy when bringing in whether you, you have a sense that there are stages or structures of the evolution of consciousness, or if you believe that there are karmic factors that work in human affairs collectively as well as individually, if you believe that there are archetypal astrological factors that play a role in our lives, it's rather easy to slip into a fatalistic or predetermined way of looking at it. And I wanted to hold that dialectic or that tension of opposites between the creativity and the order that's constantly at work or at play in our lives. And you need both. I mean, you, you need certain stability and structure and order, and then also creativity. If you had all of one or all of the other, you'd either have rigidity or chaos, it seems to me. Absolutely. Uh, Thomas Kuhn, you know, who wrote... Structure yeah, I was just thinking Revolution. that, as, as you are saying. Yeah. One of his books is called The Essential Tension, and he's recognizing... Of course, his whole theory of the structure of scientific revolution is, is an interplay between normal science, which is more structured and you do your research and you do your thinking within the endearing structure of, of certain assumptions, certain frame of reference that is passed on pedagogically and, and from scientist to student and you know, professors, etc. But the great scientific breakthroughs, the innovations, whether it's Copernicus or, or Darwin or the uh, tectonics revolution, whatever it happens to be, involves a Promethean creative act, a revolution that takes place. And there has to be that creativity, that questioning. But if you just have nothing but if Copernicus or Darwin didn't know their tradition really well, if Copernicus hadn't really studied the science and history of astronomy from the ancients through the medieval period, his theory would have been a flash in the pan. But he was able to ground it in the tradition knowledgeably. And the same thing with Darwin, same thing with Jung or whoever. They're working with that essential tension. Yeah. And if the established paradigms could be flipped with the arrival of every new bit of information, again, we wouldn't have any stability, everything would be chaos. So there's a certain value in their being resistant to anomalies, right? But then when the anomalies become overwhelming, they eventually have to shift. So it's kind of stability and adaptability, counterbalancing each other, as I see it. Yes, that's perfect. And I think the sign of, I think it was Kuhn himself who put it, that you know the sign of a really powerful new theory is the degree of resistance that it gets yeah. from yeah. those holding the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. Because if it were not seen as a powerful theory, then it would not gain attention. It wouldn't be threatening. It wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't mount the resistance, uh, or it wouldn't create the resistance. So that's something that somebody like Rupert Sheldrake, who, who I know you've also had on your series here, and is a good friend, he, of course, met with tremendous resistance and, and has all these years pretty consistently from, you know, particularly, well, both the British and the American conventional scientific establishment. And I think that's the exact measure of his cogency and how well he knows both the tradition and the anomalies that he is coming up with a new hypothesis about. Yeah. And since we're on this theme, why do you think it is that 
materialists are digging in their heels so desperately. And why is it they feel so threatened by the suggestion that consciousness is fundamental and not merely a product of the brain? Very good question. And I think there's a number of factors. You know, to some extent, it's a matter of almost like typology. Some people just have easier access to, some people have more, let's call it epistemological armoring, more resistance to either new ideas or new ways of framing their universe, or they have more of a psychological investment in the theory that they've been working with all their lives. They may have a professional investment. They may have many professional papers written that take for granted the materialistic worldview. So I think part of it can be seen as psychological, biographical, career professional issues. But then I think there's deeper things happening as well. I think materialism, as it came into the ascendant in the course of the Enlightenment, for example, the European Enlightenment, uh, the radical Enlightenment of the 18th century in particular, more in France than almost anywhere else, but also in England to a great extent. And that mechanistic materialism offered a way of definitively holding the power of Christianity and the theological and religious practices and the power of the Vatican and all sorts of things that had been overthrown, or certainly a revolution began very powerfully in the 15th, 16th centuries, the Reformation, even the Renaissance is playing with it uh, to some extent, uh, but particularly with the Reformation, it breaks into many different uh, ways of enacting Christianity, but the power of the monarchical Catholic Church was at that point fragmented, and much more free thought started coming in, and then you get the scientific revolution which offers a way in which the European mind was able to agree on something while the wars of religion were tearing Europe apart. So here was a perspective that would be available to anybody using their own empirical and rational capacities. Anybody could look through the telescope and see the the results. All the different features of the modern scientific ethic offered a way out of the almost suicidal clashing of different forms of Christianity that was tearing apart Europe. So that was a factor. And then there's the whole, I think, really deep level of emancipation from the belief in hell, the belief that there is a cruelly judging God overseeing every action and thought, and that if you screw up, you can have eternal damnation. And I think while the telescope and the Newtonian, Cartesian, and subsequent theories opened up a cosmos that seemed to eliminate the possibility that at the center of the earth was hell, which was the medieval belief, you know, as you see in Dante and so forth. And while it didn't show the angels and God out in the heavens, and certainly in any literal way, and that's the disenchantment. Suddenly, the cosmos is seen as being just, you know, matter in motion, no deeper meaning. It's not focused on the earth. The divine order is not being expressed through the celestial. The divine intelligence is no longer being shown through the movements of the planets and the sun and moon around the earth with the earth as the focus of 
divine and cosmic attention. It's just suddenly the earth is spinning out into a, a cosmic void. But at the great liberation of humankind to be able to chart its own destiny and to frame its future with according to human values that took this life seriously and that helped people, let's say, embrace their physical, their erotic existence without guilt or all, all sorts of things that were part of the Enlightenment's attempt to liberate itself from what it saw as the oppressiveness of of the church and the medieval period. And the, the price that was paid for that, of course, was that by freeing our cosmology from, and our ontology, like as in materialism, from there being no spiritual dimension that was being expressed through it, it freed the modern mind from one particular interpretation of the spiritual order of the universe. But in doing so, it seemed to eliminate the possibility of there being any spiritual order. It just erased the whole spiritual dimension as being anything other than the projection of human consciousness, which itself was just a accidental epiphenomenon of the complexity of material evolution, which isn't a very strong basis upon which to believe in spiritual values. And so we have both the, the crisis of modern spiritual alienation combined with the new freedom that was opened up by human beings living in an open universe that was not predetermined by an angry God. And we also have huge technological innovation and transformation of the world through that and destruction of the world through that. Do you think that we now may be in the process, not only on the verge of, but in the midst of, a transformation that's as significant as the Renaissance, as the scientific revolution, into something not entirely new, but perhaps something which incorporates the best of objective science with the best of subjective or mystical traditions? There certainly are many signs of something like that happening. Of course, depending on the interpretive lens that you approach the daily news with or take in the zeitgeist, you can see signs of encouragement in that direction or signs of despair because of the spread of hatred or you know, racism or the power of corporate commodification of the environment of human beings continuing at such a rapid pace. My sense is that the climate crisis, even to some extent the pandemic, but the climate crisis is, of course, the larger looming epic destruction of the entire Cenozoic biosphere. The level of, of destruction and extreme change that is being constellated for so many human beings around the world in this very moment it's social, it's economic, it's in gender, it's in race, it's in class, it's in our relationship to the larger Earth community and all the species that are being threatened or, or made extinct by human presence and industrial civilization, etc. There's something like a descent going on, I think, in our time, a descent out of the previous confident modern sense of progress, civilized progress through human reason and perhaps through capitalism or through democracy, certainly. And all those 
convictions are now being questioned and reconceived and what do we want to preserve and what is so problematic that we might be destroying the foundations of our human future. If we were to think of this in terms of there are so many signs that in a way humanity is going through something like a spiritual emergency or what Stan Groff called a, a spiritual emergency. He was playing with the word emergency and emergence. You can also see it as being very much like a near-death experience. We're facing mortality on a planetary scale. We're facing a deep deconstruction of our old identity. What is the human being? We went from being the crown of creation to now conscientious, thoughtful people look upon the human species as being the most problematic species on the planet that is causing the whole tremendous harm, like a cancer or a malefic virus. And so this deep questioning of who we are, of our identity, the physical suffering, the spiritual alienation, the facing of mortality, these are all classic signs of an initiatory rite of passage. All these things like Joseph Campbell or Eliada would have discussed in terms of the structure of the great rituals that have informed indigenous traditional societies, archaic, ancient mystery religions, and so forth, they had and have these initiatory rituals in which the individual is taken away from the collective, from the community. The young boy is taken away from the the tribe or from the mothers and is put through a crisis in order to become a shaman or the whole generation of boys or girls are put through a transformational crucible of experience that's quite intense that involves facing death. It involves destroying one's old identity and that separation. And out of that comes the possibility of connecting to the deeper purposes and meanings and forces that are at work in life and death and in doing so, it allows uh, in, the, in the movement from the dying into the rebirth, there is a coming into the world in a way that allows us to um, see ourselves as being part of a larger unfolding whole that we have mature responsibility for, like thinking seven generations hence, instead of just the current quarterly profit report. You could say our Modern society is to some extent constituted by people who have not gone through initiatory rites of passage, transformations, and in some sense are still locked into a very short-term adolescent mentality that is causing great havoc to the world. There's no adults in the room, or at least very few, at the level of the levers of power. Adolescent mentality is a good phrase. I'm lucky to have made it through my adolescence alive. And, uh, you know, many people could say the same. And I, I sort of have the feeling that in a way that all of humanity is kind of in its adolescence now. And we're, we're behaving like crazy teenagers. And hopefully we'll make it through this without killing ourselves. One thing I've always found fascinating is that when you think back to any previous time, you know, the 1920s or the 1860s or the 1600s or whatever, people living in that society just took for granted that the world in which they live. It's normal, things are just like this, and they couldn't really imagine how different things might be, even in the not-too-distant future, much less 100, 200 years later. And I often think that about our world and what changes might be just around the corner or even 100 years from now that we're not even conceptualizing, you know, we don't even foresee 
I certainly agree that there's an acceleration of history that's very tangible. We can all feel it. To some extent, time seems to accelerate as we get older. I'm sure you have the experience, not unlike me, that our birthdays seem to be happening every three months now (laughs) rather than the nice long year that used to separate when we were young. But I think there's also a collective acceleration of history that's happening that even the young feel. And of course, our technology, not only the advance of technology, but even the very quality of our experience, let's say, is mediated by the computer, the internet, the digital, social media, the rapidity of images. If you turn on to watch a, uh, a basketball game and the advertisements come on and the the number of images and narrative shifts per 15 seconds is astonishing compared to what it was even in you know the 1960s or 70s. So things are definitely accelerating. I have worked for many, many years with Stan Groff. We both lived at Esalen Institute together and worked there starting 73, 74, and have taught together for some 40 years. And one of the things I definitely learned from him is the importance of the perinatal process, the death-rebirth level of the deep psyche that people seem to access when they go into deep self-exploration through methods that activate the deep unconscious, whether it's um, you know use of psychedelics or holotropic breathwork or certain forms of meditation, etc. One of the things that seems to happen in the later stages where you're reliving your birth, you're also encountering what feels like your death. You don't quite realize it when you're in the middle of it, but it's the dying of the womb that you've been in, you know, the dying of the old, the aquatic life that you've had in the prenatal state and the unity with not only the maternal womb, but really the sense of unity with everything. You know, you're in an undifferentiated unity with nature, with the great mother, with the universe, and suddenly you're being expelled and isolated in a quite overwhelming way. And as that process reaches a climax prior to birth, there tends to be a tremendous kind of acceleration, like um, an increase of volume and tension. The Beatles' famous Sgt. Pepper album where they have A Day in the um, Life, where where the thing goes... A Day in the Life. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Very powerful. Yeah, it's great. It was something that... George Martin, the great producer for the Beatles, put together, but at the suggestion, I think it was of John Lennon. But in any case, that captures that sense of we're moving up to an almost unsustainable level of accelerated tension. And that's happening right now to a great extent. And it's combining with this feeling that I was pointing out before. You know how in initiatory rituals, the shaman-to-be, the, the boy that's put out onto the ice in the igloo by the Northern American shamanic uh, teacher and is put into isolation for like an entire month, doesn't get to see anybody, is just given a little water and a little food every once in a while into the little ice hut that they're in. And they go through a lot. But during that, there's something about our current condition that was partly constellated by the modern mind, which is to have separated human consciousness from the cosmic community of subjects that we're part of. In other words, we became the only conscious, purposeful being 
in a vast cosmos that to our knowledge had no other conscious purposeful beings capable of meaning, capable of spiritual, moral aspiration, and so forth. And this conviction, which is part of the materialistic worldview, has created a deep sense of alienation. But it's a gestalt. It's a particular filtering out of a lot of data and an imposition of a particular frame of reference on one's experience. It represents a kind of archetypal complex in a way. And I think that complex is part of a larger process of unfolding, that there's an initiatory unfolding of humanity. This is partly a conviction of faith on my part, of trust in the cosmos, of trust of the deep psyche that we all, the kind of cosmic anima mundi that we all participate in. But I think it's also something that I am inferring from a lot of evidence. I think there's a lot that it, it, it makes sense to me, and, I, and it makes sense to a lot of other people, too, that we seem to be almost being prepared to go th- through something that will create the possibility of a participatory, enhanced relationship with the larger community of being. That's my hope. It's not a slam dunk ritual where all, all the elders are in the middle of it, too. And instead of the elders aren't controlling it, from outside the initiatory ritual. We're all in it together, and so we, we're just kind of seeing through a glass darkly. One thing that might differentiate it from the initiatory rituals of traditional cultures is that in those, the young people going through the initiation rites knew that that's what they were getting into. And it was probably explained to them, okay, you're going to go out in this igloo, or you're going to go up on this mountaintop, and you're not going to have any food or whatever, and they, they knew what they were up against. But I think perhaps the whole society is going through such a thing now, and yet the vast majority of people have no idea that that's what they're going through. And so their preparedness or their ability to go through it is seriously compromised, and you know, a lot of people are having a real hard time of it. Yeah. In a sense, by having a, a society that has not had sacred rites of passage as part of it means that we can't recognize the larger pattern that might be unfolding. And if you think about the fetus and the child, the little baby that's being born, uh, they haven't necessarily had preparation either cognitively about what's happening. Suddenly, you know, this seemingly all-nourishing cosmos that I've been in all my existence is contracting and and it's making things unbearable and now it seems to be expelling me right out as if I'm the most negative thing and worthless all those feelings tend to get activated when people relive their birth and that perinatal dimension is quite a powerful threshold of psychological and spiritual transformation have you ever relived and yours think- did that ever happen I have, yes, but yeah. I'm just curious. Um, I can imagine it as you describe it, and it, it sounds... In yes. fact, I was born by cesarean, so I didn't have to go through all that. But even with cesarean... You're all of a sudden you in do, this bright light and noise and, yeah, getting spanked. and Yeah, uh, and there's a, there's a tremendous uh, sudden rupture of being and separation from the universe that you've been embedded in. And after that point, so much depends on the presence of the loving reception, you know, that you get from your mother, from your parents and family. And, and there can be a kind of healing that can happen of that, that rupture to a great extent. But we still all have the birth at different levels of trauma inside us. Stan Groff has done a brilliant job of showing how certain 
historical collective tendencies seem to be an acting out on a collective scale of perinatal anxieties, uh, projections, impulses. Your listeners, probably a good number of them will know of Gross' work and they can explore that. Yeah. Let's shift a little bit, or maybe a lot, to what you discuss in Cosmos and Psyche. I admittedly have never had a good head for astrology in any form. My wife is pretty uh, good with Jyotish, you know, the Indian astrology. But I learned a lot in reading a good portion of your book. One thing that I got from it, and you can use this as a springboard to say much more, but that the planets are not causative, and certainly not through some kind of gravitational influence or something like that, but rather the whole thing is like this giant coherent or synchronistic clockwork and, um, you know, what's happening in the macrocosm just happens to correspond in certain ways with what's happening on individual level or societal level. And you can probably clarify the way I've just described that. But that has very interesting implications in terms of what the universe actually is and how it's actually working. So take it from there and, and elaborate a bit. Sure. Yes, in terms of uh, like the clock metaphor has sometimes been suggested as like if we see that it's uh, 2 p.m. on the clock, the clock is not causing it to be 2 o'clock. It's indicating it. It's reflecting it. And from the astrological point of view, is it's not that the planet's positions are causing us to be a certain way, this person to be nice and that person to be angry uh, or this person to have a bad week or year or whatever. It's that as Plotinus, the great Neoplatonic, well, founder of Neoplatonism, but really probably the greatest of the ancient classical philosophers after Plato and Aristotle, and he was describing how he saw astrology work both against the skeptics, but also against those astrologers who believed in a fatalistic interpretation of the astrological correlations. And he said, The stars are like a script, a language that is written out in the heavens because everything in the world is full of signs. The whole world is pregnant with signs and symbols and meaning. Everything is interconnected. And then he says, as has been said, everything breathes together. I love that uh, phrase, everything breathes together, because it, it suggests a living, animate universe that is organically spiritually meaningful all the way down it doesn't just start at a certain in a certain species or with a certain complexity of brain organization or something like that but that the human consciousness the human brilliance and imagination and spiritual aspirations are the universe's consciousness and intelligence and spiritual aspirations as expressed through us we're not separate from it And in a way, this is a superior metaphor, uh, this more organic one, everything breathes together. It's superior to a clock metaphor because, of course, the clock is very likely to be interpreted in a sort of Newtonian, Cartesian manner, the clockwork universe that could get pretty mechanistic and you could have a, a deist interpretation of it, you know, where there's God, the clockmaker. But that's much more of a mechanistic metaphor than I believe the astrological evidence could support. Astrology suggests that we live in an archetypally meaningful universe 
in which the movements of the planets and the sun in relationship, the movement of the earth in relationship to the planetary movements and in relationship to the sun, the moon around the earth, that there is a kind of unfolding, an unfolding geometry of meaning that seems to be focused on this earth in a certain way, maybe not only on this earth, but for those of us on earth, and you have to kind of cultivate a capacity for what James Hillman calls the the archetypal eye, like a capacity for symbolic discernment, for a kind of ear for the music of the spheres, so to speak. But it's just the kind of capacity for symbolic discernment that you would get if you were a good student of literature or poetry or film. In some sense, astrology represents the need to bring together the sciences and the humanities together in order to comprehend the geometry of meaning that's unfolding. It's not that the that the planets are causing things to happen. They're more, as I was talking earlier, they're more like providing us with a sense of the great chordal structures that we all participate in with the world transits, and then each of us with our own birth chart, and we get our personal transits as the planet's come into different relationship to where the planets were at your birth. And we seem to carry certain archetypal potentials that, as it were, symbolized in the positions of the planets and sun and moon at our birth. And we unfold those in the course of our lives. And it seems to me that metaphor that I was describing or analogy earlier in our conversation, it's up to us what songs we sing, what dances we dance to these chordal structures that the planets are symbolizing. But I don't think astrology is concretely predictive. I think it is archetypally predictive. It gives us a sense of the larger gestalts or frame matrices of meaning that these powerful multivalent archetypal principles represent. Saturn and Aphrodite, Venus, Mars, etc. They each have their own cosmos of, of meaning that has both shadow and light, profound and trivial expressions. It's up to us how we uh, express these. I like that phrase that the the universe is breathing or something. Was that it? Yeah, yeah. everything breathes everything together. Everything breathes together. You know, as I see it, we're just swimming in a omnipresent ocean of intelligence. And the, you can think of the universe as one living, breathing being. And you know, all these substructures being like organs and cells within that being, you know, galaxies and solar systems Mm -hmm. and planets and so on. So if you think of it that way, then you can't possibly think that everything is just dead, insentient matter and that it's like just billiard balls bouncing around. And But Mm -hmm. you, you just sort of have to see it as alive. And so it's not a stretch to discern meaning in the movements of planets and their relationship to people and cultures and so on. It you know obviously takes a lot of study and thought to see the specifics of that meaning, but the fact that there could be such meaning is not a great leap of faith. Yes, and the cultivation of the capacity to perceive the meaning is a lifelong journey, in a sense. I like Goethe's, the, the German poet, scientist, Goethe's idea that the development of certain organs of perception actually plays a role in, like, we require those organs to be able to perceive 
realities that we would otherwise be blind to so that the reality that we know is a kind of co-created fruit of our attitude towards the world as well as the world's revelation to us. They go together in a kind of mysterious, unitive way. Yeah, you quote Newton in your book as having exclaimed to God, I think thy thoughts after thee. And, you know, I've often sort of liked the phrase that we're sense organs of the infinite. We're organs of action of the infinite. And somewhere in my notes, I have you suggesting that the theory of a Copernicus, a Newton, or an Einstein is not simply due to the luck of a stranger. Rather, it reflects the human mind's radical kinship with the cosmos. So, in other words, ideas bubble up in the minds of receptive people when the cosmos wants them to be expressed, given the stage of the development of that particular culture. Right. And then the individual who is mediating the breakthrough for the culture is in some sense selected, as it were, by the unfolding universe to be the agent of this breakthrough, to be the expression of it. And that person can have images and dreams or visions that kind of lead them forth, or they will meet certain people or read certain books at just the right time that opens up a certain path that helps get them to the destination. It does seem to be, it's a mysterious process by which the universe is leading us, each of us leading us forth to flower. I like Jung's idea of individuation which is that each of us, and this is also the case for the great scientific or philosophical breakthrough, that each of us is on a journey of individuation, by which Jung did not mean that we were just getting separate from the crowd and becoming an individual. That's part of it. But he also had in mind that what we are doing ultimately is a good synonym for individuation is flowering. And just as the redwood tree in my backyard or the mallard duck that has just landed in the pond, they represent different flowerings of this same universal stuff. But it's becoming itself in, in its own way. But it's not like your intelligence and mine and whoever's listening to us. We're not like potted plants in our separate <laughs> isolated pots. You know, we're not what's Alan Watts's term, we're not skin encapsulated egos. Each of us as plants, as flowers, as in the, the universe is flowered in a Rick Archer way in you and in a Richard Tarnas way in me and in, in a Jane Austen way in Jane Austen. Each of us is planted in the soil of the earth, not in a pot. pot. We're all nurtured by the same cosmic soil and roots. You know, they've been inflected in particular ways for each of us, in ways that help us flower in our particular proper form that's peculiar to us, that's unique to our journey. But we're all expressions of this cosmic intelligence that you alluded to. Yeah, I love that quote from your buddy, Brian Swim, you know, you leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 billion years and you end up with rose bushes, giraffes, and opera. To me, that is a beautiful reference to the fact that the, the universe seems to be a big, giant evolution machine. It has this evolutionary trajectory or impetus, and it just keeps pushing and evolving forms more and more capable of 
reflecting and expressing the infinite intelligence at its basis or its essential nature. That's right. Brian is great. We were kind of part of the philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program from the beginning when I started it in 1994. And in some sense, sometimes we co-taught courses together. We taught one called Radical Mythospeculation. And in some sense, he has always represented that part of our graduate program that has moved from cosmos to psyche. And I represented the movement from psyche to cosmos because I came out of the depth psychology tradition. Jung, William James, Stan Groff, Hillman were all major kind of teachers and influences, while Brian was coming more from the direct cosmological background. He got his doctorate in mathematical cosmology. But unlike many practicing scientists, he had an intuition that the universe was uh, sacred through and through, and that his consciousness and our consciousness are expressions of an evolving, explosively creative universe, rather than the more conventional perspective that in a way, he's been kind of battling against uh, for uh, all, all his life. And his influences, of course, are Thomas Berry, Teilhard Chardin, Alfred North Whitehead, and so forth. Mm. Yeah, to me, it's just hiding in plain sight. I mean, look at a cell under a microscope or even an inanimate thing under a microscope or understand it really deeply. And it's just this marvel of orderliness and creativity and intelligence we're just swimming in that, as I said earlier, but we take it for granted, you know, we just walk down the street and all those, you know, look at all the grass. I mean, if you actually looked at a blade of grass closely enough, you'd be astounded at what you're actually walking past. That's right. That's right. So much depends on whether we have eyes to see or not. I went through a kind of awakening to the natural world in a new way, maybe 10, 12 years ago, just starting to see how the squirrel on the tree or the tree itself and its leafing, that I also was coming out of the same evolving vitality and that the fence lizard and the squirrel and the bird and I and you, we all have these four limbs, two of which bend this way with our arms, you know, forward and then the legs backwards. And we, with the development of the cranium and all these different ways, or the tree itself, and it's reaching out with its branches, its limbs and the, and the leaves to pull in the nourishment of the sun, and just starting to feel its vibratory living and sold presence and how I was kin to everything there. That sense of kinship was so much more radical uh, than I had had before that. Uh, one can easily, as a philosopher or someone who's interested in human culture and psychology and so forth, one can perhaps too easily think of, just get focused on the human project. And suddenly I was deeply, deeply interested in every stage of biological evolution and, and how Homo sapiens is coming out of the primate lineage and that the primates are part of the, the mammalian class that's part of the larger vertebrate or chordate phylum. and our close cousins in the next order over. I just found it as interesting now to know how I am related to the horse or to the hawk as I was to know how I was related to a certain cousin or uncle. It was just a whole other feeling. Yeah. 
And I think if we take it a step deeper, we could say we're just as related to the rock or to the mud puddle or whatever. There's a verse in the Gita which says, you know, the, the sage sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self. But I think that all beings in the self includes not only beings, but everything. Because, this, you know, the great sages describe that everywhere they look, they see the self. They see divine intelligence shining through the rock or the tree or the the sun or anything else they perceive. It's all one wholeness, Brahman, if you will, and that thou art. We're evolving toward that from a fragmented view to that holistic view. How would you say in your own journey that you kind of came to some of these deep realizations that you, such as that that you just shared? Well, I started meditating about 53 years ago, and I've been doing it two or three hours a day ever since. I've also been thinking about it and talking about it, teaching about it, and, you know, just kind of dwelling on it. I think there's two steps to spiritual development. One is experience and the other is understanding. And um, they kind of complement and supplement one another. So that's the project that I've been on for most of this life. I think that you've highlighted something that's so important, which is a practice. To sustain a practice that long, to be faithful to it, it makes certain things possible that aren't possible with a momentary revelation, as powerful as the revelation might be, to be able to ground it, embody it, uh, bring it into your life. It takes a longer journey. Were there any particular books or teachers or circumstances that set you on your path? Well, first of all, I summer of 67, I took LSD for the first time, and that was a revelation for many reasons that you understand, but also just the perspective that, whoa, the world isn't the same for everybody. It's, it's very different for each person. <laughs> and so the, you know, the name of the game seems to be to actually change the way you perceive it, not just to change the world. I was reading Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert's Tibetan Book of the Dead interpretation that night and trying to figure out what bardo we were in and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I stayed on that track for about a year and ended up messing myself up and dropping out of high school a couple of times and getting arrested a couple of times. And after that, one night I picked up Zen Flesh, Zen Bones by Paul Reps. You may remember that book. And it's like three in the morning. And I'm reading this book stoned on something or other. I thought, wow, you know, these guys are really serious and I'm just screwing around. And if I keep on like this, I'm not going to live very long or it's not going to go very well. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to quit drugs, learn meditation. And uh, I learned transcendental meditation and see what happens. And so I did. And right off the bat, it was very beneficial. My life changed quite dramatically very quickly. And soon I was back in college and getting a job. And I was a teacher within a couple of years. And, you know, I've just carried on ever since. But it hasn't been a great heroic discipline or anything because the experience was always so gratifying, particularly in contrast to what I'd been through. But each sitting of meditation has been blissful and rejuvenating for the most part. And it's just been this progressive, incremental growth over the years. That's great. What a blessing. You could see how other contemporaries of yours could have had some of the same experiences and then gone on a different some path. Some did. And some died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to have had, in a way, whether it was the karma or the grace that would intervene in that way and have you like read a certain thing at a certain time and get a, a certain awakening And still you had to act on it. The deep psyche, our deep soul, the spirit, the the cosmos, however we want to think about it, the divine, it gives 
little signals that we can be alert to. And some of those signals could come in with the power of Paul being knocked off his horse on his way to Damascus. But others are more subtle. And just like you kind of have to like, did I pay very close attention like to this, this subtle music that you might have easily missed, but then you listen carefully and you kind of tease it out and follow it. I think it's a relationship. It's a relational back and forth between you as an individual consciousness and the whole that is calling you to connect with it, you know, in some deep way. It's a journey. Yeah. And there's always been a sense, you know, in varying degrees of clarity, but ever ascending, that it's not just about me and what I can do to make myself happier. It's more like, how can I serve? You know, how can I be, Lord, let me be an instrument of thy peace. Very palpable sometimes that there's some kind of cosmic role to play, you know, some sort of evolutionary role to play. And that there's a deep gratification in, in playing it. I know you feel that same way. I've heard you talking about writing your books and the other books you have in you, and you feel like you need to sort of get them out, you know, while you're still able to. And there's definitely a sense of, you know, what can I contribute, you know, to the evolution of the cosmos or to humanity in what you're doing? Right. It's almost more important than food. In fact, I too often postpone or suppress my hunger feelings because I'm so into, you know, what I'm writing about or reading or thinking about that I actually have to remember to keep the physical side of me um, attended, <laughs> you know, nourished as yeah. well. I'm just curious. I know a good number of the people I think that you've uh, interviewed over the years thinking about, you mentioned Stan Groff and of course, Rupert Sheldrake, who I saw you do not too long yeah, ago. A couple years uh, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious, as you look back upon all these many interviews, are there any that sort of stand out as being especially illuminating, exciting, unexpectedly brilliant, or you know, anything that you can recall out of your vast uh, library of interviews? There? Oh, I hate to show favoritism. Right, you know, yeah, I know what and, you mean. And uh, if you look on, on the BatGap uh, past interviews menu, there's one of you know most popular interviews. And in terms of the number of views on YouTube, some good ones in there that wouldn't necessarily be the way I would rank them, but that seems to be what appealed to the most people. Remember in high school where you, you watched movies about amoebas and you'd see this amoeba sort of going along and there'd be a little particle of food and it would kind of engulf the food and digest it and then they would go after another particle. I kind of feel like I'm an amoeba. And each guest is like a new particle of food <laughs> and uh, there's just something enriching. It fills new chinks, new gaps or enlivens new areas in my understanding and experience to kind of dive into the world of each new person that I interview and immerse myself in it as much as I can over the course of a week and then have a conversation with them for a couple of hours. Um, so there have been a number of them, and, you know, a number of them have become very good friends. You know, I've just formed this network of friends around the world that I never would have met if I hadn't been doing this. That's great. It's such an enriching thing, personally, I can imagine, for you to be. Well, think of yourself that, that, teaching I, college all these years and all these wonderful students that you've interacted with. And I'm sure that they've enriched you as much as you've enriched them. Very Not much, that I'm yeah. in a student, a teacher-student relationship with the people I interview. It's a different dynamic, but, you know, similar principle. Right. Yeah, yeah. In my case, they're graduate students, you know, doctoral and master's students. But, yeah, over these 30 years, it's definitely 
think Heidegger said, the teacher is the person in the room who is learning the most. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think Stan at Esalen, he would have twice a year for a month, he would have these month-long seminars where he would invite people like, you know, Fritjof Capra or um, Houston Smith or Ann Armstrong or Gene Houston or David Bohm, Rupert Sheldrake and so forth. And maybe there might be a half dozen really great teachers that would come in each month. So you're just constantly being enriched by this um, exchange of, of, of new ideas. Such a blessing for One you to thing, be able to hang out there for as long as you did, so immersed in it. Boy, what, that, a, what that, an experience. Yeah, that was a great blessing. I had read when I was an undergraduate at Harvard in the late 60s, I'd read an article in the Harvard Crimson that said uh, the headline was, After Harvard, Esalen? <laughs> the question yeah, mark. you took off the question and mark. I, I think I might have been the only person who read it that actually went to Esalen and stayed there, but it was really my graduate school, and, uh, and I, I took in certainly as much as I received in Cambridge. I received in Big Sur uh, over those years, but on a, in a totally different way. One thing I appreciate about your deep dive into each person you're interviewing, where you just immerse yourself for a week or two in their their writings, their their interviews, and so forth, is that, yeah, I can imagine that you come away from that week and then the, the conversation itself with a sense of your soul's been expanded and enriched in a deeper way than if you just did, you know, read one book or had one sustained conversation. That can be a lot, but it's different to... I know that my life has been greatly changed by whatever thinker that I was being deeply inspired by to kind of like read everything, you know, like I, I read everything that Tolstoy or Dostoevsky ever wrote and, you know, it could be Jung or it could be Charles Taylor for me right now these days. It's just such an illumination that you get by having that deep dive rather than a shallower yeah. exposure. It stretches you. I remember uh, last summer, I think it was, I interviewed Donald Hoffman. You may, you probably know Donald. Fascinating guy, very brilliant. And I spent a whole week just kind of like walking a couple, in the woods for a couple hours every day, listening to talks that he was giving and, and then reading his stuff in the evening. And I, I felt like I really had to stretch to understand what he was saying. And it almost, my head almost hurt at one point because I, mm. I was just really stretching to get this guy. But I, by the end of the week, I felt like I got it. You know, I understand what he's saying. We had, we had a great conversation. So it really, like you're saying, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, reading all these people, it stretches you. I took a writing program years ago, 85 or so, and they say, you want to be a good writer, you know, read Shakespeare, read Dostoevsky, read the great writers, and it seeps into you. Yeah. Yes. I teach a class, I'll give a talk or workshop once a year to my students called uh, The Art and Discipline of Writing. And because we're particularly trying to cultivate the people that are studying these ideas, also the ability to articulate those ideas in a way that the intelligent general public can hear them and understand them. So, you know, not to write just within the jargon of a narrow academic specialization, but rather to reach a, a wider audience. Yeah. That's actually, we, in a way, an advantage for me in that I don't have an academic background. I don't have a really extensive education. So I can kind of serve as a step-down transformer, in a way, <laughs> talking mm -hmm. to some of these people to kind of intermediate between a general audience and somebody who's a heck of a lot smarter than I am. Yes. 
But your point of how important it is to study the masters of the art that you want to become good at, if you read Jane Austen's language, it's so amazing. I remember John Kenneth Galbraith said that he always read some Jane Austen just before he began his days writing mm, because it, the pump. it has that. Yeah, she has such a mastery of language, a clarity of thought, and every single word is perfectly chosen. Each sentence fits into the paragraph, each paragraph into the larger chapter. It's got that kind of intelligence that if you take it in each morning a bit, you know, just read a few pages before you start, it helps to cultivate similar capacities in oneself. Yeah, you train with her intelligence. There's a saying, that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. Right, right, which is something to keep in mind when, if one might be tempted to binge watch (laughs) something that's not particularly high quality. That would be important. Also, there's the problem of we need to face the shadow side of existence and of our own shadows and at the same time not get swallowed by it. Nietzsche talks about you gaze into the abyss too long and it can can kind of swallow you. So it takes a, a certain balanced discernment about how to open oneself and attend to the sides of existence that we don't want to see and yet at the same time to not become swallowed up by it where you lose the capacity for hope for you know to have that larger healthy balance of life well you know if you take a handful of mud and drop it in a glass of water you pretty much muddy up the water but if you drop it in a bucket then you don't muddy it so much if you drop it in a swimming pool then you don't muddy it so much if you drop it in the ocean you don't even, it just dissolves so i think that while exploring the shadow we need to, at the same time, move in the direction of oceanhood in terms of our consciousness, in yes. terms of our awareness. Then we'll be able to dissolve this stuff and uh, not have it pollute our psychology. That's right. I was thinking about a Rumi poem the other day where he talks about the not only uh, are we the drop part of the ocean, but the ocean is in the drop. The whole uh, we're not just in the ocean, the ocean is in us. And that's why when one does a deep meditation or has a certain revelatory psychedelic experience or something like that, one feels that one's entering into the cosmos itself. You're not just inside your subjectivity. Yeah. One way of putting it is God is in everything and everything is in God. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I want to do an abrupt gear shift here because... There's this British philosopher named Jules Evans. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yesterday or the day before, he sent out an email. I'm on his email list, a newsletter, in which he said that he has been in a secret astrology believer for years, but he's having some real serious doubts. And he mentioned you in the article in a complimentary way as sort of the intellectual of the astrology world. And I emailed back and forth with him a little bit, and he wanted me to ask you a couple of questions. So I'd like to ask a few kind of more skeptical hmm. questions about astrology for the sake of those who might be feeling skeptical. One thing he said, there's so many books explaining how astrology is supposed to have this, you know, you're able to interpret it this way and it's able to predict that or whatever. But he feels there's a paucity of information about how it's actually supposed to work. And the way he put it, and we've already kind of covered this, but we can cover it again a little bit. Does he really think these giant rocks emanate particular energies over particular areas of our life? If the universe 
God were so intelligent, why would it bother making one rock represent love, another rock represent communication, and so on? And then in a related thing, why would God put our fate on the lines of our palms? And are these planets supposed to be alive, to be gods? I think that was the original idea. And the entire system is founded on the fact that the constellation of Libra looks a bit like a scale, and someone thought Mars looked angry because its soil contains a lot of iron oxide, which is red. So you can see where he's coming from. How would you respond to those things? Well, there's a lot packed into that. I like Rudolf Steiner's idea that everything physical, everything material in, in the universe is an expression of a spiritual being. There's a spiritual dimension to everything. Rupert Sheldrake has a whole line of thought going about, you know, is the sun conscious, which is a very interesting question given the physics of it and the complexity of it and so forth. I don't myself have a kind of x-ray vision into what, I'm not a clairvoyant to be able to see what is it about Mars or Venus or Saturn or Neptune that has this relationship to these great archetypal principles that can be experienced as gods and goddesses as they were by the ancients or as uh, platonic universals or you know platonic archetypal ideas cosmic principles as plato would have seen them or as jung sees them as these deep psychological principles that are part of the collective archetypal unconscious that is is actually embedded in the material universe as well and isn't just human what is it about the planets that they can be correlated with? We all have a sense that the heavens are numinous. I think even the most disenchanted astronomer, who nevertheless passionately goes to the next uh, full solar eclipse because there's something they're pulled by, the power and beauty and the kind of cosmic magnificence of it. Anytime we watch a dawn or a moonrise or a sunset or see an extraordinary, you know, like a conjunction of Venus and Jupiter and the moon in the sky, there's something numinous about it. We sense that there's more going on than just rocks that are reflecting light. There's the human response to it needs to be attended to that that's not coming out of nowhere. The idea that those are just rocks up there is to some extent an abstraction from our full experience. And I think of astronomers and mathematicians uh, as being, in some sense, serving at the altar of the cosmos. They're drawn to, they might not put it in explicitly spiritual terms, but they often do. The sense of wonder, the sense of mystery, the sense of this has a spiritual meaning for me. Even the disenchanted mechanistic scientist is, in some sense, serving an ensouled cosmos. And taking matter seriously is an important part of our evolutionary journey, because part of our evolutionary journey was to go through a differentiation where we took just the spiritual as being important, and the material was seen as being nothing but illusion or something to be transcended as soon as possible, or it's a a valley of tears where we're being morally tested, but the only thing that counts is the afterlife, and so forth. I think in some ways, the evolution of human consciousness has entailed a reconnecting to the value of the material world, of the physical, natural world, which our indigenous societies from the ancient past 
but also of the present, have been carrying that capacity of experiencing the value of this life and the natural world, but in, in an ensouled way. I think astrology is carrying that deeper, longer-term human intuition that the universe has both a physical and, an, and a soul dimension, a spiritual dimension. Uh, and why wouldn't the universe in its incredible intelligence be willing to give us indications of its meaning? You know, we have the word meaning. That's a tricky word. What does meaning mean? Well, one of the things that meaning means is that something means something. Some conscious intelligence is signifying something, is communicating something. I mean this, you know, if we live in a meaningful universe, then the universe is a universe that is communicating meaning. And it can communicate it through the movements of the planets, through the cycles of the sun and the moon. It can express its meaning through the patterns of animal movements, of the birds that the Native American can read. Life is telling me something right now. And the people who can read palms or tea leaves or whatever, everything in the world is full of signs. The universe is symbolic through and through. It's pregnant with meanings and and purposes. So that being said, it is still an astonishment to me that astrology works. It's a daily revelation. In my book, Cosmos and Psyche, I kind of packed in countless synchronicities, basically, of patterns that are quite compelling, both in terms of convergences of very similarly patterned events in many cultures across the world at the same time, but also in diachronic ways, according to, in coincidence with the cycles of of certain planets as they come into conjunction or opposition. All of those represent a kind of, I think, a revelation of the universe's deeper intelligence and spiritual and soul and souled depths that it is using the movements of the planets, I think, in relationship to the Earth to, at this point, I think, help awaken humanity to the fact that it's embedded in a, an intelligent cosmos that cares about the Earth and that cares about this each human being on it, each being on it, each moment is in some sense a focus of cosmic meaning. I think that's a deep message, and it's similar to what happens in human life when we have experiences at at major critical thresholds of our life, like facing death or births or moments of great spiritual transformation. Synchronicities tend to occur. Meaningful coincidences seem to converge with an unusual potency, both in number and in quality. And those synchronicities that seem to accelerate, they're like communications from the deep psyche to, I think of them as, you know, helping to orient us and to remind us that we're not alone in a certain way. But in terms of the astrological Jung called astrology, it's like it's synchronicity on a grand cosmic scale in some sense. That's one way of looking at it. And why would synchronicities be coming in to the modern mind that has been living in a disenchanted universe for the last several hundred years? Well, it could be that the modern mind is going through a critical threshold in which it, in some sense, needs to awaken out of its slumber of feeling that it lives in a disenchanted mechanistic 
universe of just rocks and gaseous planets and so forth. And instead, that we are participating in a magnificent and a magnificently intelligent spiritual mystery. Yeah, beautiful. One way I come to terms with all this is to take Rupert's question, is the sun conscious, and rephrase it slightly to say, the sun is consciousness. Everything is. And everything, obviously, seems to have a material existence to it, but there's a range from the gross material through various subtler strata down to pure consciousness or pure intelligence. Now, that's all pervading, but then things arise as forms in you know specific locations. And whenever there's a significant form, like the sun or Neptune, or even a small insignificant form of a wildflower, it's not insignificant, but a small thing, it's not only what meets the eye on the surface level, but there's a whole range of subtler levels to its existence. And intelligence permeates and orchestrates that whole range and exists in its pure state at the foundation of it. But you could say that every gross form has a subtle counterpart or a subtle body. And a significant form like the sun, even flowers, I mean, they say there's a flower deva or something that's in charge of that flower. But a major thing like the sun or a planet would have, it seems to me, a rather powerful or profound subtle body. So, you know, you can kind of actually get back to understanding why the ancients thought of these bodies as gods, the sun, the moon, all these different things. Obviously, it's just the sun is a diffusion reaction and the moon is a big hunk of rock and, and so on. But on subtler levels, and we could just take this as a conjecture or a hypothesis, on subtler levels, there could very well be an intelligent entity, as it were, that is embodied within that gross form. And if, if that's true, if we think of it that way, then it might help to understand astrology better because we have all these powerful, intelligent entities sort of doing a dance around us and being reoriented in relationship to us. I don't know if we want to get back to thinking that they're influencing us or that the whole thing is just part of a larger clockwork and, you know, we're part of the dance too. But it's easier perhaps to see how their positions relative to ours might be significant. Yes. And what you're talking about in terms of maybe at subtler levels, they are much more than just these material objects. There are modes of consciousness that I think ancient humanity had had easier access to and that some of us can access in non-ordinary states of consciousness. Uh, well, all of us can when given the, the grace to have that kind of a, an epiphany. We can experience them that way, and it's not—it's a type of empiricism. It's not like only conjecture. It can be yeah, felt yeah. Uh, and experienced in quite a vivid way. So I can sympathize with your friend's state of questioning, even though he's drawn towards the, it seems, sounds like he's been drawn very much towards something about the astrological disclosure has been drawing him He's been into time. it for decades, but he's just beginning to, yeah. he's going through this period where he thinks, yeah, what have I been doing this for? It was kind of the reverse sequence for me, but for both Stan Groff and myself, even though at, at Esalen, just about every imaginable esoteric, spiritual, mystical path and discipline and perspective was being taught at one time or another during the years that we were there. But astrology seemed like kind of the last one that we were thinking we would 
take deeply seriously. But, you know, many philosophical and scientific breakthroughs take place when you're dealing with a problem and you're trying to come up with a way of meeting that problem. And in our case, the problem was in the area of psychedelic therapy, different individuals could take this exact same substance, the exact same dosage level, and have radically different experiences. In the case of LSD, it could be one person could be in heaven, the other person could be quite literally in hell, and everything in between. A person can have existential desperate panic attack, you know, while another person is experiencing being nourished by the exquisite beauty of life that suddenly is he or she can see. And both Stan and I were questioning, like, is there any way that we can get some intimation of how a person might respond in advance? Because there's the stakes are high if you're working with a patient population, how they're going to respond to these powerful substances. But none of the standard psychological tests like the um, Rorschach or the thematic apperception test, the TAT or the MMPI, uh, n- none of them had any predictive value uh, for understanding either how two individuals might respond to the same substance, but nor uh, the same individual at different times, because as you know, you can have a very different experience three months from now or a year from now than the one that you had today using the same substance and the same dosage level. So someone at Esalen in one of our workshops, or it was actually in one of Stan's month-long seminars, who was an artist but who had studied astrology for many years. And he said in his experience, people's ongoing daily life experience, as well as major crises and and breakthroughs and so forth, the timing of those seems to correlate with where the planets are relative to where they were at a person's birth. He convinced us enough to be able, where we, we learned how to calculate the birth charts and calculate transits, And we had very good records for our own LSD sessions, as well as Esalen was such a kind of living laboratory of people going through transformational experiences that we had such a great database to draw on. So we did the calculations, and then we looked at the astrological textbooks about what kinds of experiences are likely to happen under this transit versus that transit. And the correlations were so consistent and so impressive that it made us start studying it more systematically until we came to realize that this was like the, well, as Stan said, archetypal astrology is like the Rosetta Stone of the human psyche. It provides us with a way of reading. It connects the deep unfolding geometry of meaning of the cosmos to the archetypal language of the human psyche in a way that allows us to track both our own lifelong dispositions, but also our ongoing shifting archetypal dynamics of our lives, and then also to see it at the collective level. That's the thing that this um, Changing of the Gods documentary series is going to focus on, is the collective historical level is what was going on in the 60s, and why is there such a, a close relationship between what happened in the 60s and what's been going on recently over the last several years? And how does that connect to the French Revolutionary Epoch and so forth? And so, yeah, we found that the collective uh, world transits were extraordinarily important for understanding even psychedelic experiences, too. Hmm. If you think of it, when that documentary series comes out, let me know and I can 
provide a link to it on your BatGap page. Okay, that's a good idea. There's a couple of questions I came up with that I've just been wondering about. If we send people to the moon or Mars and, and children are born there, would we be able to devise astrological systems to suit those locations? Well, um, of course, it's all speculation, but on the basis of what we see on the Earth, um, the location on the Earth is um, seems to play a role in, you know, for example, uh, I was born in, in Geneva, Switzerland, and at the time, and it was, you know, pretty close to noon. And so all the planets and the sun and moon at that point were positioned in a certain way relative to the horizon. But if I'd been born right at that exact same moment, same day and year, but in New York or in Johannesburg, I would have a whole different, I mean, many things would be the same. The geometrical alignments of the planets relative to each other would be the same, but relative to the horizon of the earth and the, you know, the vertical axis, they would shift depending on where you were in the earth. And those changes are visible in terms of the correlations. A person who has a planet at the midheaven tends to have certain archetypal energies related to that planet a little more. They express themselves in, in certain, often very public ways or in ways that are more related to one's work in the world, etc. The reason I bring this up is that if we were to imagine someone born on another planet, we would have to be measuring the planetary positions, the other planets and the sun, and perhaps multiple moons, if, we're, if you're dealing with Jupiter or something like that, you'd have to measure that according to the relative positions to that place on Jupiter or on Mars. And then there's the whole question of the Earth seems to have a certain character. It's gotten a name over the last, I mean, it's gotten the rebirth of a name, Gaia, over the last half century, and even a certain quality. One of my other colleagues, Sean Kelly, is just publishing a book on coming home to Gaia, and a kind of emergence of a planetary consciousness seems to be happening in certain ways, which I see as part of this initiatory rite of passage and death-rebirth experience that we're going through. But would living on Mars have a different meaning? Would your foundation be different because it's Mars rather than the Earth? I would think so, but it's all speculation. So I think it's an interesting question, but not one that I have the slightest sense that I could give an authoritative answer. Yeah. Well, obviously, yeah, it would have to be speculative. I would think that every planetary system in the universe, if astrology is valid, would have its own astrological system based upon the configurations of the star or stars and, and planets in that system. Yeah. And by the same token, it, it would almost seem that perhaps galaxies or clusters of galaxies or super clusters would have their own astrologies that correlate with events in their respective time and distance scales. Yes, and it could be entirely different structures of meaning. Yeah. I mean, just completely. You know, Terence McKenna used to say that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence out in the universe by tracking radio signals is like trying to look for a good Italian restaurant out there. Why radio signals? It could be many different ways in which other intelligences in the universe might want to communicate or their, the way in which they communicate. So... I think we have to keep a pretty open mind about what's out there. Yeah. All right. So let me ask a final question, and that is, 
Maybe I could get you to prognosticate a little bit. We're all wondering what the world is going through and where it's going to end up in 5, 10, 20 years. You and I are 71, and, um, you know, if we're lucky, we might live in, real lucky, we might live another 30 years. So how do you see things going, in, both in terms of your, your understanding of history and the, the changes of cultures throughout history, and in terms of your understanding of astrology, putting those together, do you have any ability to prognosticate a bit about the coming decades? I can see in terms of the current decade that we have just entered into that you know, we're coming out of a very powerful and challenging Pluto square Uranus in the sky, which is the first alignment of what we call dynamic or hard aspects since the 1960s of the same two planets from 60 to 72 or so when they were in orb, as we say, in range of exact alignment that correlates with these archetypal expressions in, in human life. It's like these big archetypal waveforms seem to come in during certain you know alignments of the planets. And we're right now in a quite a dramatic transitional stage uh, involving three of the planets, Saturn, Uranus, and Pluto, and all in hard aspect. It's a critical time. These are typically transits when crises tend to happen. It's volatile, tensions of opposites, need for volcanic, there are like volcanically intense evolutionary pressures pressing for the radical reconfiguration of all life structures. I mean, that's basically the way to summarize what we're going through right now in terms of the world transits. But what's interesting is that starting roughly around 2023-24, those two planets are going to, Uranus and Pluto, will move into a trine relationship, which is a 120 degree more harmonious configuration, when the same energies of evolutionary drive and movement towards change, breakthrough, experiment, etc., tends to happen in a less fraught way than we've been going through for the last uh, decade. And, you know, everything depends on the present, like how we respond to the, these critical energies that are constellated right now. That will create the foundation for whatever can unfold over the rest of the decade. So much will depend on uh, the degree to which humanity will respond to the present need. I have to say the last three months have been encouraging compared to the preceding four years in, in <laughs> our country, the United yeah. States, you know, to finally have some modicum of sanity and competence and compassion in the White House is very encouraging. And, you know, even though we might want even more to be able to unfold, let's say, in terms of shift in our environmental policies and corporate policies and so forth, tremendous amount of work needing to be done in terms of economic, social, e ecological justice. That being said, I remain hopeful that in a sense the, the, the crisis of conscience that our country and many other countries in the world have gone through in recent years, combined with the kind of vital emergency that the climate crisis is, is producing for our collective consciousness, could produce a significant transformation in the fact that there is this pressure for change. I'm hopeful 
that we could reorient our way of being in the world on the basis of a moral and psycho-spiritual transformation that many people have been going through, even under the COVID pandemic circumstances, there's been, I think, a lot of self-reflection that's been going on. People in seclusion may be doing a little more thinking about what's important in their lives and how they're going to live their lives. Mark Twain said, if you ever get the urge to predict the future, you should take a nap. (laughs) Uh, And I take that advice as being very wise. So I I am not in a position to predict the future, but I have a sense of hope and I see hope as playing a role, not just, it's not like a kind of rational optimism on the basis of our best evidence. Hope is more of almost like a spiritual virtue that you have to cultivate. And it reflects, I think, a sense of the universe's capacity for love and therefore our capacity to trust in its unfolding in ways that we can't predict, in ways that we can't see on our horizon right now. And we need to act to the best of our ability with what we can see right now, but with perhaps a certain trust in the cosmos, trust in life that allows us to take the chance to do things that might not have their reward in our lifetime that might bear fruit only under certain circumstances in a future decade, a future century. Yeah, even. Seven generations. But, yeah. So uh, I think hope can be seen as in some sense, a it's like a seed that we can plant in the future that can draw us toward it. Or you can see it as the future planting a seed in us that we cultivate and we move towards actualizing through the hard labor of life. Each of us has to do it in a different way. We each have to kind of pay attention to the intimations that we get in our psyche of in our soul's life about what is calling us, what feels right for us to do, where do we feel a certain joy, where do we feel that life is most vitally alive, engaged in our being. And those are probably the ways that life is asking us to flower. So maybe that's a good place to Yeah, no, that was a great answer, very wise and nuanced. So wonderful. Really appreciate it. Let me just show your website on the screen here. It's uh, cosmosandpsyche.com, is it, or...? Yes, cosmosandpsyche.com and I'll be I'll be linking to it from your page on that gap. Thank you so much. You were using my amoeba analogy, you were a very nourishing morsel to engulf. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be of service uh, and hopefully others who hear our conversation will find some value in yeah. it. Yeah. Please give my regards to Stan Groff and um if he remembers me and Yes. And Brian Swim, and tell Brian anytime he wants to come on, just let us know. I haven't had him on the show okay. yet. I will. I'll pass it on in both cases. Great. All right, take care. Thanks, Richard. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. You know the drill, batgap.com. Go there and check out all the menus, and um, you'll see what's what. I don't want to keep Richard any longer. Next week, a very interesting Sufi gentleman from South Africa will be my guest next week. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again, Richard. You're welcome. Bye-bye.